0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. In this crossover episode with the CSIS podcast, Coronavirus Crisis Update, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, joined Steve Morrison and me to discuss the anti-vaccine movement, the vaccine resistant, and the turmoil in Texas over lifting the mask mandate in wake of severe weather emergency. All that and much, much more on this episode of The Truth of the Matter.
1: Andrew and I are delighted today to again be able to host Dr. Peter Hotez, who's Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and also their co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. Peter, thanks so much for making time for us today, and welcome back. Good to see you again, Steve, and to hear from you. So let's start out. I want to talk to you not exclusively about taxes and things going on in Texas, but we'll skew that direction in some of our questions. I want to talk, first of all, about your life in Texas. You moved from Washington, D.C. I remember you were here at GW, and we interacted a lot in that earlier period, and then you decamped for these uh, major roles in Houston. You've been there now a number of years you become a very vocal advocate, very conspicuous, high profile advocate of vaccines and an active and highly visible opponent of anti-science and anti-vaccine activists. Sometimes that's put you into a pretty confrontational role and all of the risks and and consequences sometimes that have come with that role. So let's talk about you adopting that part of your professional identity in these years. How did that happen? And then I want to talk about some of the particular challenges in Texas that I think you were very focused on as you sort of evolved into that. How did how did you come into this role?
2: Well, you know, Steve, I was at GW for uh, 11 years, George Washington University, and I loved it. We did a lot of stuff together. And that was one of the attractions of being in Washington was working with people like you and CSIS and It was exciting to be in Rome at the height of the Roman Empire and doing big things with the federal government. And I learned a lot in Washington. One of the things I learned was reaching across the aisle if you want to get anything done, which is something people have forgotten about. I was still in Washington, D.C. at a time when Democrats actually spoke to Republicans and Republicans actually spoke to Democrats and got a lot of things done around neglected tropical disease legislation. And it was a great time. And quite honestly, I, I went to Houston and Texas because, you know, the science is so strong down at the Texas Medical Center and the support for science. And I, I wanted to kind of take things another step further with developing vaccines, which is ironically, is that's when I started our coronavirus vaccine program. That was the first new project I started 10 years ago when I moved to uh, Texas Children's in Baylor. But I went there with the understanding that I would probably lose my national profile Because, you know, how do you beat Washington? And then interesting things happened. Ebola hit Dallas in 2014 and Zika hit South Texas. And, you know, I became a key person representing Texas to the public audience in the United States about that. So I kept my national profile activities up. But then the other thing that happened was Texas became the epicenter of the anti-vaccine movement. Starting around 2014, 2015, the anti-vaccine movement, which had been sort of percolating along since the Wakefield paper in 1998, took this sharp pivot to political extremism on the far right and began taking money from Tea Party donors. They created their own political action committee called Texans for Vaccine Choice. And it became this sort of political monster. And, And why that happened, you know, it started kind of after to the 2014-2015 measles epidemic in Southern California in Orange County. And when the California legislature responded by shutting down vaccine exemptions, I think what happened was Texas became the next battleground. They were going to hold the line in Texas, and it became very much linked to health freedom, medical freedom, and really started to ramp up. And then you know you had 72,000 kids denied access to their vaccinations in the state of Texas. And that didn't incorporate any of the homeschooled kids. So we have over 300,000 homeschooled kids down in Texas. So, you know, I've always used my expertise as an MD and PhD laboratory investigator and scientist to, if I was felt I was a subject matter expert in something and there was a gap, I, w- I would jump in. And that's really how the whole neglected tropical disease initiative started. And this was the same thing. Here I was, a vaccine scientist in Texas and I had a daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities, my youngest daughter, and I have four adult kids. So if Peter Hotez doesn't say something, who will? And so I did. And and that put me front and center of a lot of anti-vaccine aggression with a twist. And the twist was that political extremism on the far right. And um, not that I wanted to. Have that come along, but that—that's
1: what came with it. So, yeah, well, it does come. I mean, when you look at Paul Offit's experience in Pennsylvania, at Penn, Paul has been a openly a very aggressive, assertive, uh, standing up against some of the anti-vaccine activists, and you know he's been targeted. He's paid a price. And in this, as you've pointed out in your writings, your commentaries, anti-vaccine movement has not only deepened its game, become more effective it's also broadened its range it's become part of a broader culture war that's right and it's become a major platform of political
2: extremism on the right and and it's enlarged steve it, it you know it was always focused around vaccines and then in 2020 with covid-19 starting up it expanded its remit it started protesting masks and social distancing so it was what had been an anti-vaccine movement was a full-on anti-science movement right now and then you got in you know, organizations like this Great Barrington nonsense and, you know, the whatever it's called, that institute, that that supports that up in in Great Barrington. And it became a mainstream, twisted, but a mainstream movement. And I contend one of the reasons why 500,000 or 525,000 Americans have lost their lives is not only because of the SARS-2 coronavirus. It was the SARS-2 coronavirus enabled by people who tie their political allegiance to define masks and social distancing and 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 now vaccines. And I felt this is an important fight. I And now we're even seeing some other new wrinkles. It's globalized, Steve. It's last summer, you had these anti-mask, anti-vaccine rallies in Trafalgar Square in London. They stormed the Reichstag in the German parliament in Berlin. They it was in Paris, in Rome, and it had that same smell as the anti-vaccine, health freedom, medical freedom stuff in the U.S., so it was exporting. And then, as if this wasn't complicated enough, you have the Russians deciding to use this as a wedge issue to sow discontent and to promote divisiveness across the country. And so they started flooding our Internet with what some call weaponized health communication. So now we've got a full-on anti-science
1: movement on our hands. And again, I'm, I'm front and center of this thing. You've referred to it as a confederacy. You've also been, I saw where RFK Jr. referred to you as an OG, an
0: OG villain. Yeah, I'm the OG villain, Steve. I had to look it up, original gangster villain. Peter, if, if you're an OG, you're the best kind of OG when it comes to this. What do you think the long term impact of this is if this anti science movement is seeping into our politics and as you just pointed out not just our politics but global politics what what is the long term harm that this does to all of us you know just
2: for full disclosure i tend to be a bit of an outlier here in seeing this as a threat so a lot of my colleagues maybe you know maybe it's because you know i'm i'm the person that they target first and foremost now with this stuff i see this as a threat to the planet that's every bit as dangerous as nuclear proliferation or global terrorism and arguably worse more people have died because of anti-science death by anti-science so i have this paper that i wrote you know, trying to link all the pieces together with Russia and West, what's going on in Western Europe and Texas. And, it's called, and the title of the paper is called Anti-Science Kills. It's published in the Public Library of Science plus Biology. And I, I see this as an enormous global threat that we have to confront. And, and it's hard getting people to want to confront it. You know, it makes people like myself, academics, very uncomfortable, you know, doing this. Your bosses have stood by you, I assume. They have. They've been good at Baylor and Texas Children's. I mean, They've a lot
1: there. of institutions you wade into the middle of a culture war, these institutions have to serve lots of constituencies. But as far as I can tell from a distance, you've been supported.
2: Yeah, no, they, they really have been great. And again, it's it's not like I was looking for a fight. You know, what happened was in last year, you know, there was always a problem with the national response to COVID-19 because... There was this insistence, and we can talk about why that happened, of putting the states in front never having the federal government lead it, as should have happened and is starting to happen now in the, in the Biden administration. But then you started seeing this deliberate disinformation campaign coming out of the Trump White House. And later on, Scott Atlas came on to lead it. But even before then, you had... You know the Kaylee McEnany saying that the hospital admissions were due to catch up elective surgeries and the COVID deaths were not due to real COVID. It was due to other stuff, and and then you had discrediting of masks and social distancing, and and then the the Great Barrington thing came along, and I and I saw, and you know not because I'm the most brilliant guy in the world, but it's because for years I've been fighting this anti-vaccine movement. So I'd become sort of a, an expert of sorts in recognizing anti-science disinformation. And, and I could smell it a mile away and I knew exactly what this was. And the problem was, you know, everyone tells you, hey, you're just a, you know, scientist, you're a physician scientist, stick to the science, stick to the science. Well, I was sticking to the science, but the bad guys were linking the anti-science and in, intertwining it with politics and to tear it apart, to tease it out, you had to... Get your hands dirty with politics. And, you know, my wife Ann saw me, you know, how upset I was getting because I didn't know where to go with this thing. And she said, look, Peter, you don't want to wake up at the end of 2020. This was, you know, early last year and see all the bodies piling up and the deaths mounting and know you didn't do everything you could to stop it. This is why you got your MD and PhD. You have that special knowledge, knows how to do it. And I did it. And it's I'm still, you know, feeling the effects of that.
0: And Peter, the immediate problem here is this isn't a fringe issue. I mean, the recent polling by Pew and others has shown that, you know, a large percentage of Republicans say that they're hesitant to take the COVID vaccine. And a lot of that is coming from this anti-vaccine rhetoric and anti-vaccine activism that you're talking about. So, you know, it's a threat to all of our health if a significant portion of our population is responding to these anti-vaccine, you know, campaigns. Uh, absolutely, you know, I did a
2: well. So I partnered with. A, I'm not a social scientist. I'm a vaccine scientist, but I partnered with a group at Texas a and led by uh, Tim Callahan, who is a social scientist, and we did a survey of who's not going to get vaccines. And the number, I think, the number one group is what we call Trump voters, and then the Kaiser Family Foundation using different methods, came up with the, what they called Republicans as the number one. So this is now, you know, anti-science is now a major platform of the Republican Party. And in, in, in 2015, it was just a major platform of the Tea Party, you know, the real extremist part of the Republican Party. Now it's a mainstream part of the Republican Party. And, you know, I try like hell to try to disengage it. I, You know, the, historically, there was nothing anti-science about the Republicans, right? Na- I mean, NASA was started in the Eisenhower administration and HEPFAR was started under George W. Bush. I mean, he you know, ushered in the decade of, of global health in the Bush administration. So,
0: And George W. Bush famously read John Barry's account of the pandemic and the Spanish flu in, in 1918 and got his people to immediately start preparing for the next pandemic that's right i was told he wanted to be briefed every day on avian and zoonotic flu
2: and you know he brought in da henderson and and phil russell you know one of my mentors to to help him set that up you know so what happened you know how did how did things get so off the rails? i mean as i always like to point out i mean america the greatness of our country was built Sure, on our wonderful military, but also our research universities, our research institutes. It it helped us, you know, it gave us radar in the Manhattan Project to defeat fascism in World War II. It helped us win the Cold War. It helped us put people on the moon. I mean, we did big things through science. And so the irony is this lack of historical, lack of understanding of American history. You know, I want to give some of these guys in, in, in the Senate, in the House, I want to send them all an, an American history textbook to, to remind them about this stuff.
1: On this note about partisanship and politicization of these issues, and it's a confusing picture, right? 28% of Republicans, the most recent poll from, from Pew, showed 28% of Republicans telling them in their most recent poll that they will not accept a vaccine. It's not like they're on the fence. There's another 16 or 20% who are on maybes in the maybe camp, and it all comes into about 50%, either 28% saying no, or the other portion saying no. on the fence. But when you look at the at the bill, the $1.9 trillion bill, which is a, a $400 billion in investment in the response, in the pandemic response... 77% of Americans are very eager and supporting of that. A lot of governors are supportive, Republican governors are supportive. So you got a lot of Republicans who are out there thinking, okay, we need this for our economic recovery. We need this for the science, for the vaccine, vaccination, for the testing capacity. I mean, there's a lot in there that's pretty historic. And so you gotta hope that you gotta hope that there's still a residual base of bipartisanship. I think when you look at the way that NIH is going to be handled in Congress and the Appropriations policy. There's always been very deep bipartisanship because it brings benefits to the university's research community across the entire country, right? I mean, as I said, you know, that's the one thing I learned being
2: living in Washington, D.C. for 11 years. If you want to get anything done, you reach across the aisle. I mean, I would – and it was doable, right? I mean, I would go – to, you know, for the neglected tropical diseases back then, Sam Brownback was a senator from Kansas. He wasn't the, the governor. And I mean, he would hold a prayer breakfast and I would go to the prayer breakfast and talk about neglected tropical diseases. Then I'd go across the hall to Senator Leahy's office, you know, and I mean, you can't, I mean, can you think of any two senators more diametrically opposed in terms of ideology? Working together on neglected tropical diseases not a problem. It was so,
0: and we've, we've lost that. Well, and now you can't get one vote from the other side uh, for President Biden's COVID relief bill.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's,
0: it's, you know, I mean, governors might agree with it, you know, uh, from the other side, but not one vote.
2: I mean, one of the strengths of our country was always, you know, that it was a dynamic tension. Now, now we've got up the dynamic part. It's just tension.
1: Peter, let's go back to Texas. We had Governor Abbott's decision last week, which, Took a lot of people by surprise in terms of lifting the mask mandate and lifting the restrictions on businesses. One hundred percent was kind of dramatic. Followed by Mississippi. And why did this happen? In your view, what was the motive? What were the motives? Why the timing? Why did it happen then?
0: And I have to add that Texas does this on top of facing the biggest crisis, you know, in in terms of weather that it had, had in in decades. Just getting through that, and you know. Then, all of a sudden, they announce Governor Abbott announces we're going to lift the mask mandate
2: yeah and, and living through that now they 're calling it ice harvey so i uh, you know i had was living with my <laughs> wife and my youngest special needs daughter, living with a special needs adult with no heat you know and the freezing cold with no water that was that was a challenge and, and people started feeling very apocalyptic about things it you know it felt like the world was coming to an end because you weren't getting any information and and the, all the businesses were out. It was a homeland security issue, uh, ultimately. And then, yeah, I don't understand the rationale for the governor's uh, move. Certainly not. There's no scientific basis to it, because even though the total numbers of cases are going down, we also know that the B117 variant from the United Kingdom is accelerating in
1: Texas. So you've got all variants in Houston.
2: Yeah, well, David Peirce, who heads this, we've got all f- five variants of concern, uh, but, you know, the ones, the 501Y ones from UK and, and South Africa and, and Brazil, but also other ones from New York and California. But then now David Peirce, who's the city health director, is a physician who runs the, I mean, he doesn't head the Houston health department as Steve Williams, but but David is the medical director you know finds that now 31 out of the 39 wastewater samples are positive for B117 and Sato at Yale and others have shown a pretty good correlation between what's what you find in wastewater and respiratory transmission so this thing is going is going to rev up and if there was ever a time not to not to relax especially cuz you know we lost a whole week of not vaccinating so we're we're at the bottom we're near the bottom of percentage of Texans who've gotten vaccinated and we need the time to to catch up and so why at least those restrictions at this way?
1: Some people attributed it to CPAC in Orlando that he was he was watching this he you know, they've got the twenty twenty fours, the people who aspire to 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 run in twenty twenty four or wanna be seen as on the rights on that side of the fence and He's watching what's going on there and, and others are starting to shed and attack these things. And so he jumps on board. I find that a very credible explanation. It also changed the subject from the vortex disaster. But also it seemed to signal that President Biden's hope that we could move beyond the highly politicized toxic environment, bring the temperature down and talking about behavior, behavioral controls talk in humane terms, talk in terms of unity, of purpose, that he got a very defiant no way from from Governor Abbott a day or two after the president himself had been down there with Governor Abbott, looking very sympathetically and hand in hand, looking at the victims of the vortex.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was quite hopeful when the president came to Houston. You know, I thought that was a very positive sign. And and, you know reaching out and so it was very disappointing to to see that happen also you know I don't like the way Texas is being portrayed in the media yet again I mean it, it paints us all as a you know a bunch of backward hicks and ignores the fact that we've got NASA here and the Texas Medical Center and the reason I came to Texas was to take my science uh, up a notch you know've been working for years to kind of show that side of Texas and it gets undone very quickly. We still, you know, are very much a flyover nation type of media that looks at what goes up and down the Acela Corridor and what's on in the Bay Area and maybe LA and, and, and San Diego and not much else. And so that that's discouraging as well.
0: Even though most of Silicon Valley is moving to Austin. Right.
2: That's right. Yeah. Austin is considered the oasis.
1: And you do have I mean Texas power, wealth increasingly the population is centered in the four major demographic urban centers, which are predominantly Democrat in their governance. Plus, you the big businesses, the big the big national businesses have stuck to their mandates for mask use, right? You know, now the
2: big supermarket chain down here, one of the big ones called H-E-B. And, and H-E-B, you know, to be lock and step with the governor, I guess there was no longer going to require you wear masks inside. And a lot of people got really upset because, you know, people don't want to go into businesses that are not safe. So knowing that everybody's masked inside of H-E-B means that, you know, the, the supermarket chain is doing everything it can to ensure safety of its customers. And if it backpedals from that, I think that actually backfires. So I think, it's, I think masks are actually good for business. People feel comfortable going to stores that have a mask requirement. How long do
0: you think people will be wearing masks in public?
2: I think things will be for a few more months. I mean, one of the good pieces of information that's come out in the last few weeks is the studies out of Israel with the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine showing that two doses not only has high efficacy of symptomatic illness as everybody expected, but was actually 92% in stopping documented infection, meaning PCR positivity And in the subgroup analysis, it looks like 90% asymptomatic transmission as well. So assuming the other vaccines do the same, it means that we can vaccinate our way out of this epidemic if enough people get vaccinated. We'll actually halt virus transmission. And so that's really exciting. And, you know, I think the CDC in the first round of their uh, recommendations and the CDC guidelines still don't feel comfortable with knowing the full performance features of the vaccines and are worried about the variants. So they weren't quite ready to go the distance and I'm okay with that. But I think you'll see as we head towards later in the spring, you're going to see version 2.0 of those vaccine guidelines and they're going to include being able to travel without masks and, and go to restaurants without masks. So I don't know that it'll be completely normal, but, um, and we will require a boost a booster shot, a third dose of the Moderna Pfizer, second of the J&J, targeted to one of the variants of concern, probably the B1351 in South Africa. That's the one we're working on for our vaccine also. But, you know, it's, it's going to look so much better as we head towards the summer. Again, another reason why push the lifting of the masks at this point. We're, we're going to get to a good place, but let's
0: hold off. You think there'll be a third booster to the Moderna and Pfizer shots? I do. And when will that take place? In the fall or? Fall or early next year. And that booster, and I think
2: for all of us, so take any vaccine and add one to it, including ours. We have a recombinant protein vaccine that we're accelerating with biologically in India. And that boost will do two things. One, it'll raise the amplitude of the virus-neutralizing antibodies and increase durability. I think that's one thing that it'll do. And 2nd It will steer the immune response to also protect against some of the variants of concern. And then the question is okay, then do we have to do that every year? I don't think so. I think, you know, you don't know for sure. I'm hoping that'll hold for a while because a lot of the variants of concern seem to be converging to similar types of mutations. So even among the worst ones, that most of them tend to have either that aromatic amino acid substitution, the 501 position, or the lysine in the 484 position. You're not necessarily seeing variants all over the map in terms of the, the spike protein receptor binding domain. I that may change, but I'm hoping because of that convergence, it's a sign that we may be not one and done, but three and done or two and done with, with the vaccine. We'll see.
1: What kind of gray do you give the Biden administration now six weeks in?
2: If you'd asked me four weeks ago, I would have... Had some issues. I think they're starting to get their mojo working now. I think they seem to be more on top of it. I think, I, I guess I kind of thought, given the fact that everyone was selected based on past experience in Washington, they would have really hit the ground running. I think there were a few stumbles in the beginning around the schools and and not really understanding the level of vaccinations that they had to get up. Now they seem to get it. So I, you know, I, I don't see a lot of missteps lately. Things seem to be moving pretty well.
1: And once the $1.9 trillion gets signed by the president, uh, how transformative is that going to be? There's lots of, there's billions upon billions in there for contact tracing, testing, vaccination. All sorts
2: of well, believe it or not, I didn't stay up till two in the morning with the Congress to listen to it read. So uh, even I don't know what's, what's in there um, entirely. I'm hoping there's a big component for research and development and for making next generation coronavirus vaccines because we're going to need that. Also, you know, I hope there's an anticipation of, of future pandemic threats And hopefully doing something about some of the anti-science stuff. But I assume a lot of it is due to non science related things around economic
0: stimulus. Let me ask you this, Peter. You mentioned Israel before and their study of the Pfizer vaccine. What about Israel's experience when it comes to vaccine passports? Do you think that's something that's going to happen here as well? It might. I'm deliberately not pushing it yet. And let me tell
2: you why. So one of the things that I did when we got our survey results and saw so that it was seen as, as Kaiser, the two most vaccine-hesitant groups are the African-American community and the Trump voters. And you might say, well, boy, that's really for very different reasons. So I started going on radio stations that serve the African-American community to advocate for vaccines. And then I started... And I was doing it before until I got cut off when I was calling out the Trump White House for the disinformation campaign. But I'd been going on conservative news outlets pretty steadily because I think it's important to talk to the entire country. And I started pushing again. So I started going back on, you know, I did one on Newsmax. I went back on Fox a couple of times. um, Did Daily Caller. And I really, you know, I'm really trying to make it clear that all I'm interested in is saving lives. And when I go... On the conservative news outlets, the one thing that always comes up that there's almost like an obsession about is mandates, vaccine mandates. They they create this straw man that somehow the the Army or the National Guard's gonna hold everybody down and give them a jab of of COVID-19 vaccines. And you know, see so you spend a lot of time explaining, hey, you know, even if we wanted to do mandates, forget it. We we don't have the vaccine doses and I don't want to push that too hard because we've got so much vaccine hesitancy around among those conservative groups that I think it'll backfire. You know, maybe in time we'll do it, maybe on some of the college campuses. I think if we were to push that agenda now, I can't say it's poked the bear. The bear is well poked already, but I don't know that we, I think it's, as Shakespeare says, ripeness is all. I think we should hold off on fighting that battle, at least for a while.
1: We're going to have lots and lots of uh, surplus vaccines sometime in the summer. I mean, the estimate now, one estimate is 600 to 700 million doses by, the, by August, beyond what we need for our own national purposes, as we clarify whether we need the third, the third vaccine or the second vaccine for J&J. What's your thoughts on how we should be making best diplomatic use of our blessing here?
2: Well, I think we should go by the Indian model, not the Chinese and the Russian model. So the Chinese and the Russian model is very sort of quid pro quo, like sort of an old Cold War style peddling, influence peddling. Yeah, and very transactional. You know, doing what India is doing, which is making vaccines for the world and working through national regulatory authorities. I think that's, that would be my hope. You know, we've got to restore vaccine diplomacy, this vaccine nationalism has been a very destructive force coming out, especially coming out of Russia, which is also simultaneously filling our internet with anti-vaccine bots and trolls, which is... And so they're, I always think that's kind of ironic. I mean, here they are, sort of, they get very outraged with me that I'm so critical of Russia, the Russian Gamalaya vaccine, when they are the single largest promoter of anti-vaccine disinformation. It's like clients like Claude Rains in the Casablanca movie just uh, just so shocked but i am very worried because i see a lot of doom and gloom for the african continent although africa's done well with covid-19 thus far that b1351 variant coming out of south africa is now going to malawi mozambique and i think this could be the big one for africa in terms of covid-19 they don't have a lot of vaccine right they're not getting the two mRNA vaccines. They, they can't be scaled for them and and it's expensive and, and you have the onerous visa requirement. The AstraZeneca vaccine looks like it might not work well for the South African variant, um, which is unfortunate. And when you, you uh, know, Merck is out, Merck and company is sort of out. They're not making their vaccine. Sanofi's delayed. I mean, and, and I don't know that the Russian and Chinese vaccines, how well they'll work given the low levels of, Virus neutralizing antibody they produce, I worry when they get hit with the South African variant, it may be even less effective. So you've got some J and J vaccine coming in, in southern. J and J, but you know, J and J's having some production issues as well, right? They can only deliver three to four million. So, you know, what happened was the policymakers went very heavy on the innovation. And, you know, if it wasn't innovative, they weren't interested. And and I think that was a mistake because you need some sturdy old school vaccines and that's what we had right we developed a recombinant protein vaccine just like the hepatitis b vaccine technology it's been around 35 years but it's working it's giving great protection in non-human primates looks like so india is now scaling up biologically in hyderabad they're making 1.2 billion doses in clinical trials and and so you know ours could potentially become one of the first people's vaccine as they call it for Africa and elsewhere. So I'm hoping that works out. But, I, you know, in the early days, I mean, when 2020 hit, we really had a struggle to raise money. I mean, we, I had to raise it from private sources in order to even get the prototype cell bank in order to do the technology transfer to biological E. Everything was all about, you know, it had to be the RNA vaccines or adenovirus vector platforms. Uh, and, you know, why that happened, I think is worth looking into at some point.
0: Peter, I want to ask you this. Back in this country, in the United States, you know, guidance came out from the CDC this week that really good news for grandparents. They could, if they're vaccinated, they can go, you know, play with their grandchildren, hug their grandchildren. People who have been vaccinated can gather in small groups, things like that. It feels like we're turning a bit of a corner, but then we have some mixed messages. We have, you know, Coming from you and others and data about the vaccine hesitant. We're hearing about lots of groups that don't want to get vaccinated. We just talked about all this. And then we're, you know, there are a lot of people who are vaccine confused. So what happens if we have 70% or 60% of the United States vaccinated and then the rest not? What happens to us if that's what, you know, the eventuality of this is?
2: Well, in a, with, especially with the variants that are more transmissible, the UK one in particular is the one I'm worried about in the immediate future. You know, the, the simple calculation on level of vaccine coverage based on measles experience is a simple equation, one minus one over the reproductive number of the virus. That's how you get to 0.95 or 95% required for, for measles. So we're going to you know given the higher transmissibility of B117 we're going to easily have to get over 80% who knows maybe 85% and if we're serious about it so that means most of the adults have to accept the vaccine and adolescents and kids so we have our work cut out for us in terms of stepping up our level of communication and i think some of that some of the vaccine hesitancy will melt away a bit as people see others get vaccinated and see how their lives improves and and sees no untoward effects so i think that, that level of vaccine hesitancy will naturally start to wind down but it'll never disappear entirely and and it won't disappear until we do something about deplatforming all of the terrible anti-vaccine disinformation out there that dominates the internet i mean i could take you through the amazon.com site everyone talks about facebook and instagram Go to amazon.com, put books up at the top, like everybody has done a thousand times. Press return, you'll get a scroll down menu to the left. In the middle of the page says health, fitness, and dieting. Click on that. You'll get something called vaccinations. Click on that and all fake anti-vaccine COVID conspiracy books. So amazon.com is the single largest promoter of vaccine disinformation. And until we find a way to work with the tech giants and make them do it, make a good faith effort to do something about it. This is going to continue to haunt us.
0: Are are we doing good enough with our communications right now coming from the government or is it too uneven because you have state government communicating, federal government, even local governments communicating about these?
2: We've, we've done a pretty poor job, I think, in public health communications and it, it was really, well, I mean, yeah, the, all right disinformation last year coming out of the trump white house but even that aside the quality of the communications was poor i mean and it was first of all it was disorganized and they would talk to the american people like they're in the fourth grade or sixth grade without really explaining the assumptions and they still do that there's i think they love the quality of communicate public health communications coming even out of the biden administration is not great it's very fragmented and just the way they do it—if you ever look—it looks like you know you listen to their press conferences. You got the they got the Hollywood Squares thing going, where they have the different. You know, there's oh, Dr. Wolinsky over there, and Tony over there, and this person. It's it's not an effective way to communicate because each person gives a little piece of the story. There's nobody that really does the synthesis. There's nobody that does what I tell my first year graduate students they have to do. Which is okay. This is the problem. Now, these. This is the problem list. This is what we're working on. Here's what could happen if things go badly. This is what we're going to try to do to solve it. I mean, this is not hard to do. And and put and give them your assumptions and stop with this paternalistic garbage of saying, you know, we know what's best and just giving this summary statement without explaining where the assumptions are coming from, as though the American people can't handle the assumptions. And, and this all comes, I don't know where it comes from. Old fashioned journalism schools that said, you have to talk to the American people like they're in the fourth grade or sixth grade. People have gotten more sophisticated and uh, not everyone and still lose some people. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned, you know, going on the cable news channels every day is people don't mind the complexity. They 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 want to be spoken to like adults. They
0: want to really understand. In this case, they're obsessed with the complexity,
2: and they have to. they you know they have to make good decisions for themselves and their families, and and so we still haven't fixed that part of things yet.
1: We're getting to the end of our time here, and we want to make sure that we get your last word on like where you find the greatest hope and the greatest optimism looking ahead. You've given us a pretty, I think, detailed, rich fair and balanced sort of set of views here. And we're, we're delighted you are so candid and blunt about the bad things that are happening and, you've, and your courage in standing up to them. What gives you the greatest optimism and hope right now?
2: I feel like my legacy will be for these last two years, I'll be forever known as the killer of fun in the United States of America. But, but I actually am actually I'm quite optimistic. I, I think the performance features of the vaccines give me a lot of cause for for optimism i think the biden administration is starting to go on all cylinders now and and get vaccinations out i think by the summer the country is going to be in a much better place Uh, i know i said that last december i kind of said that would happen by march i think the two things that i failed to take into my assumptions again this is why i give assumptions so people can can understand it. What I failed to consider in my assumptions, I thought operational warp speed was for real, that there really was manufacturing at risk and the vaccines would be available as soon as emergency use authorization was granted. That was not the case. And then I didn't think the variants would be so dominant like they are. So that did set us back. But I do think now by the summer, we're going to be in a very good place. That's the good news. The the not so good news is we're in for, I think, a tough spring with the B117 variant, and still not having enough vaccine supply. So the mother load of vaccines is not coming till June or July, and by then things will be better. So it's all about how we navigate and chart a course for the country over the next few few weeks. Uh, that that I worry. We're coming upon the uh, Ides of March, and uh, I say, beware the Ides of March. It's, it's going to be a tough time. And then I am very concerned about Africa. I'm very concerned about Latin America. I mean, I think the COVAX facility was, was brilliant in its conception, and I believe in it, and I believe in the mission of CEPI. I think, though even despite best-intentioned efforts, the vaccines are still not there. We don't have enough low-cost Non fussy, easy to deliver, durable,
1: sturdy vaccines out there yet. So I, I do worry about Africa and I don't know. Peter, thanks so much for spending time with us today. This is, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, it's great to catch up, particularly soon after the events in your home state there in Texas. And I uh, wish you the very best and I hope we can come back to you in another couple months and, and revisit all of this. My hope, Steve, is that when I
2: do come back in a couple of months, the world's going to look a lot nicer for, for the American people anyway.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: Thank you, Peter.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify,